0: So, good evening, Um, I'm Tim O'Shea,
1: Principal and Vice-Chancellor of the University of Edinburgh and convener of the Gifford Lectureship Committee, Uh, and it's a tremendous pleasure to welcome Lord Rowan Williams of Oystermouse to give the fifth lecture in his very well-received Gifford series, and this lecture is entitled Extreme Extreme Language, Discovery Under Pressure. Uh, And can I just say what a tremendous pleasure it is to see such a distinguished audience for our very distinguished. Lecturer, so you're really warmly welcome. I remind you the lecture is being recorded. The video will be available online on the Gifford website and it's been streamed live around the world. And now it gives me enormous pleasure to ask Lord Williams to address you.
2: Thank you very much. The, uh, title of the lecture, as my wife remarked, sounds a little bit like a a warning on television. The following program may contain extreme language, but um, it's not quite that kind of language I'll be discussing. Last night, you had quite a lot of um, ill-digested scientific discourse, and tonight, just to balance it, you're going to get a lot of ill-digested arts-related discourse. But we'll start with philosophy again, and this time a quotation from the philosopher of language and early developer of computer languages, Margaret Masterman. She wrote a paper in the 50s called Metaphysical and Ideographic Language, in which she says, paradox is the most extreme kind of metaphor, just as metaphor is the most extreme kind of simile. What she notes in this difficult but important paper is that a series of descriptions which violates with increasing recklessness the ordinary canons of consistency may end up saying, as she says, something less preposterously untrue in the common sense and scientific senses of true than a single metaphor. In a string of paradoxes, each, so to speak, qualifies the recklessness of each of the others. Logically, though, a form of words that offends against ordinary logical consistency is more startling than a mere assertion that X is Y, so paradox is more extreme than metaphor, a more pressing problem for a logician. But it won't do to ignore the fact that paradox is routinely used in our language, and to insist against the facts of this usage that any form of words creating problems for logic has to be illegitimate won't do. Philosophers may well be, as Margaret Masterman says, driven to distraction by sloppy appeals to poetic logic or statements about how all language is really metaphorical. But she argues that it's only by engaging with the problem thus posed that philosophy will escape from a bonfire not only of imaginative literature but also of descriptive linguistics. Tackling the logical issues will allow the philosopher to arrive finally, she says, at that fully ripened stage of tense despair out of which alone some unforeseen intellectual leap can come. I trust that university teachers present will examine their students carefully on whether a fully ripened stage of tense despair has yet supervened in their work. I suspect the answer may be yes. (laughs) Margaret Masterman goes on to set out an example of paradox which she takes from a scientific rather than literary context. She summarizes a paper, a recent paper in the 50s, in Cell Biology, which dismantles the notion of two different kinds of cells, organiser cells and ordinary cells, which were not capable of initiating the processes of specialisation associated with organiser cells. And she does this on the grounds that under different circumstances, the latter, ordinary kind of cell, could acquire the characteristic action of the former and could also become pathogenic, and transmit its degenerate condition to others. The argument could be summed up, says Masterman, I quote, by saying that, speaking biochemically, cells both operate causally and also in such a way as to render meaningless the whole causal conception upon which biochemical theory is based. And that's a paradox. Experiment displays in these cells a set of properties that can't be harmonized. And the resolution of the problem is to specify the contexts for the contradictory patterns of behavior. Redescribing one or the other in such a way as to remove the logical parallelism that creates the paradox in the first place, i.e., you redescribe one part of the situation so as to make it clear that the different elements are not competing accounts. If that reminds anybody of the technique used in Christology by the fathers of the Council of Chalcedon, that's probably not an accident. But this sort of resolution doesn't produce anything very new or interesting for philosophy in itself. If there are paradoxes that do more than simply point up the desirability of increased descriptive precision, but also actually precipitate new levels of understanding, we shall need, says Masterman, a more technical response. Her proposal is what she calls an ideographic language in which instead of sticking to a subject-predicate-based model of referring, works with the model of a situation or focal event of the kind we were thinking about yesterday, which can then be qualified by a nest of factors of increasing generality. Paradox, then, is not simply a byproduct of insufficient precision in setting out the context in which you're making descriptive claims. Paradox triggers a process of reshuffling the conceptual pack, unsettling the simple relations between subject and object, as well as subject and predicate. The point is not, as again we were saying yesterday, not that we should accept a more vague and imprecise account of what's in view. We have to work in a variety of ways to discover different and appropriate ways of being precise. Masterman's ideographic schemata, which I won't share in detail, point to one way of achieving a different kind of precision, and, as she says, this is the philosopher's way of trying to crystallise what the poet sees instinctively and represents less formally. To go back to her original axiom, we are dealing with extreme forms of utterance. In order to give a satisfactory account of my environment, I begin by saying, this is like that. To see what's there, you listening to me will need to call to mind what's not directly there. As I pursue this strategy, I may come to the point of saying, not just this is like that, but this is that. I move from simile to metaphor. To see what's there, frame it, figure it, as if you saw it in the context or through the lens of what's not directly there. Push this further, to paradox, and the final stage is, to see this clearly, you'll need to imagine drastically different vantage points from which to see you need to imagine points which in fact you can't occupy simultaneously and which will deliver flat contradictions if you try to put them together. What is said becomes in one way more and more expansive. It reckons with more than just this set of perceptions in this moment and it summons up material distant in time and space in order to configure the here and now more fully. And pushing these strategies of redescription to extreme lengths in this way takes us, paradoxically, closer to the immediate object. And by the time we've got to the level of paradox, we're really no longer describing, in the usual and obvious sense, certainly not cataloguing atomized elements of an object. Our notion of what it is to produce a truthful way of speaking about what's in front of us will have been notably enlarged not in a way that licenses vagueness or which seeks to come at truth by uttering superficial falsehood, but through beginning to grasp that the truth of this moment is inextricably bound in with a potential infinity of other moments and other perspectives. There is, as many of you will know, a lively debate in the literature as to whether a metaphor is literally an untruth. But the point's been well made by philosophers like my colleague Janet Martin Soskis, that when you have a statement whose literal truth would simply be nonsense, it can't be right simply to treat the statement as a falsehood. A proposition whose truth conditions might be met, but as a matter of fact, are not. If you have a proposition whose truth conditions just couldn't be met, you can't go down that route. The extremes of language that are in view here are used because of what is left out of the formally exact subject predicate version. So, part of our linguistic practice, one of our linguistic habits, is to put pressure on what we say in order that we may come to see more than our initial account delivers. The context of Margaret Masterman's vivid evocation of the tense despair that that precedes intellectual advance underlines the fact that we not only experience pressure in and on our language, pushing us towards new intellectual patterning, we also invite or construct such pressure. Developing the implications of an experiment, as in the example Masterman gives, in such a way that the underlying models being employed are themselves shown to be inadequate to the problem as thus phrased, is a familiar matter in science. We may go on using the routine language, the old ways of configuring phenomena for most normal purposes, but we're made aware that at the very least, the language we're using is a heuristic tool and that we need to specify its context very carefully if it's not to lead us into nonsense. At a more serious level and on a longer timescale, models may dissolve and do dissolve under the strain. Increasingly complex refinements of an existing model give way epicycles in Ptolemaic astronomy, negative weight for phlogiston, and so on. And finally, a new model appears. And to recall my earlier reference to the work of Mary Hesse and Michael Arbib in their 83 Gifford Lectures, we become more wary of speaking as though normal usage were more stable and fixed than it actually is. So, We move, as I've seen, as I've tried to demonstrate, from the more or less illustrative use of a simile, this is like that, through to increasingly explosive usages that ultimately, as we've seen, invite us to rethink our metaphysical principles, our sense of how intelligible identities are constructed in and for our speaking. Extreme or apparently excessive speech is not an aberration in our speaking. Given that it is, as I've already noted, difficulty that drives the sense of a reality to which we are painfully accountable, it's not surprising that making things more difficult is so common, so normal, a tool of exploration and discovery. By turning up the temperature of language in this way, we identify questions that can only be answered when we imagine new contexts and so new connections new relationships. We are steadily shifted away from a world of discrete substances in the void, which we talk about in a simple calculus of propositions. And this is, as Margaret Masterman says, a way for the philosopher to begin to chart what the poet does. A grasp of what's happening in poetry and in other non-standard kinds of utterance is important for a grasp of how thought itself moves. If the processes going on in the poet's work are manifestly more than decorative, if they do constitute a way of enhancing truthful acquaintance with our environment, the philosopher is right to point out to the scientist some of the mechanisms involved and to ask how poetic tactics can be transferred from poetry to a wider field. So then, how do these tactics work in poetry itself? What are the self-imposed pressures that generate such truthful acquaintance? Well, I noted in an earlier lecture that poetry is traditionally characterized by non-standard patterns of speech, rhyme, assonance, and stress. In contrast to our habitual speech patterns, poetry organizes sounds in specific and regular ways. Even the loosest forms of free verse work to patterns of some sort even if only in the division of lines. I don't propose here to discuss the work of William McGonagall. But what's striking is the sheer complexity of the patterns that different poetic traditions develop. Intricate schemes of internal rhyme even within a single line. The precise counting of stresses and syllables. The systematic use of oblique ways of referring. Anglo-Saxon and Norse poetry make extensive use of what are usually called kennings, conventionally sanctioned metaphors which give verse something of the character of a riddle, the whale's way for the sea, and so on. Early Greek poetry comparably uses conventional epithets, rosy-fingered dawn, the wine-dark sea, and the poet is under the discipline of routinely trying to see one thing through another. The language is marked as poetic, by that oblique character. The difficulty here may be minimal. These are ritual moves familiar to singer and hearer alike. No one in the Anglo-Saxon audience is going to complain or even scratch their flaxen heads over the whale's way. Everybody knows what that means. But they act nonetheless as warning signs that this discourse is something distinct from the usual exchanges of the culture. These signals invite us to set aside, for this period of listening, our assumptions about identity, about the solidity or closure of our perceptions. They remind us about seeing one thing through another. And the various techniques of rhyming perform another function, perhaps most important for the poet. Finding a rhyme, and ideally finding a rhyme that's not merely conventional, requires a unique moment of holding an idea in suspense while the writer looks for a way of saying it that will echo specific sounds. Don't underrate either the oddity or the difficulty of that enterprise. For the reader or the hearer, the resultant echo will leave at least a trace of the sense of an unexpected connection. And for the poet herself or himself, it will have been a matter of finding new phrases generated by the pressure of a discipline, meaning that a fresh perspective has been brought to birth. By, so to speak, squeezing the substance of your language through rhyme, through rhythm, through metaphor, something fresh emerges. And the most relentlessly complex schemes of assonance, like the classical rules of Welsh can intensify this about as far as it will go, Requiring not only rhyme, but consonantal groupings and deliberate stress shifts on top of that. In addition to the 24 classical meters of Welsh poetry, there was a 15th century Welsh poet by the name of ab Edmund, who was said to to have invented two more meters so complicated that only he was ever able to write anything in them. But these techniques are there to increase the possible range of new and unexpected connections. So, an ethnic interlude. A quite well known Welsh poem by the great Pembrokeshire poet Walder Williams. It's his prize winning entry for an Eystedvod in the early 1950s called Tithowi, St David's. Its first line offers an instance of one of the simpler forms of Kunghanev, Nors deu amanis dewi, the assonance of four consonants, N, S, D, and W, in the two halves of the line. The literal meaning is the night of God on the island of David. God, Dew, and David, Dewi, are associated in a fairly obvious way. This is a poem that has something to do with a man of God. But the association of Norse night and Anis Island is a more challenging one. This place, David's Peninsula, is a place where a certain kind of darkness falls, the darkness of God's presence. To be in this place is to be in the night. And the stanza continues, spelling this out in terms of a longing, an eros, hyraith in Welsh, that arises in sleep. A long or slow movement of hyraith longing, moving towards the seashore, trith echoing hyraith. Something grounded in the sort of memory that works slowly and subterraneously in sleep. What the memory says is the eros that belongs to all things, a line where hiraith, longing, chimes with arith speech. Language, in other words, chimes with longing, as memory, corv, chimes with the totality of things, a coven. Now, a commentary on the 13 pages of this poem would be an unrealistic project in this context, you'll be glad to hear, but the point just with these few lines may be clear. The search for assonance produces a very strong form of the analogical vision that allows us to see one thing through another, all the stronger because it arises through apparent accidental similarities in sound. And of course, there can be play with diverse kinds of similarity, as when the consonantal pattern of that first line, Nors stiwa is repeated much later on in the poem, further complicating the resonances of that opening phrase. This time, my anwes dowel, anis um, Dewi, the same consonantal pattern, this time meaning literally, there is a still embrace around David's island, or stillness hugs David's island to itself. So that indirectly, the night, the Norse, of the first line of the poem is linked by the repeated assonance to the intimate anwes, fondling, caressing. Well, this is language under pressure, deployed as a means of exploration, invoking associations which may seem random in one way, and yet generate a steady level of unsettling alternative or supplementary meanings in the margin of simple lexical sense. It's true that, as I hinted last night, there is a kind of magical thinking in some cultures that sees verbal assonance or association as indicative of a specific affiliation of some sort, a linguistic version of homeopathy, we might say. But what's going on in this tightly disciplined poetry is rather different. It is at the first level an invitation to see one thing through the lens of an unexpected other, but then at a deeper level it's a reminder that we are always seeing through the other, that we never see anything in its own isolated terms, and that we can't rule in advance which others are acceptable and which unacceptable in the business of extending and enlarging our perception. The entirely accidental chime of arraith and hiraith in Welsh, like the less pronounced chime of, say, longing and language in English, which you may have noticed I used earlier, doesn't indicate either an etymological common ground or a mystical essential bond. It just tells us that we never know what we might need, what we might be glad of in understanding any one element in our environment. Pile on the pressure and you force yourself to see freshly. There may be, indeed there are, genuinely absurd homophonic patterns, but the challenge of a good poem in such a classical form is precisely to find patterns of this kind that are surprising, but not simply arbitrary. Symbolist poetry, especially French symbolist poetry, often plays deliberately with the near-absurd in order to create sound patterns. And this is routinely taken as bound up with a strong commitment to the arbitrariness of verbal signifiers. But without embarking on the rather formidable task of tracking the metaphysics of symbolist verse, again, I spare you, digressions on that subject, we can at least say that the effect is not simply to dissolve proper reference, but is also a kind of appeal to some imagined plenitude of linguistic response to the environment. You never know how much you need in order to be truthful. Nothing we say, no mode of representation is going to be final. And so we cannot but guess, in more or less disciplined and coherent ways, what will or may fill out what has been said. The point can be broadened out from poetry to include many sorts of fiction, many varieties of visual art, and of course, music. Fiction, in its modern European sense, is a curious cultural development, heavily involved in the mythologies of the modern self and its formation over time. But whether we think about realistic novels, or about more experimental examples, whether we think of Anna Karenina or Ulysses, some of the same factors apply. Here is a narrative asking for recognition, but also making a particular mode of telling about human experience a discovery, an encounter with the unexpected. Realistic fiction does this by obliging us to see what we thought we knew as if for the first time. The abiding fascination and power of Tolstoy in something like Anna Karenina is often in his observation of minute details so familiar that we usually ignore it. The distracted thoughts and half-conscious habits that accompany our actions, especially in what we imagine to be our most concentrated or elevated moments. And of course, if we were to turn from Tolstoy to Virginia Woolf, we'd see that technique again intensified, pressurized in a new way. Experimental fiction does it by making language play with uncontrollable allusions and echoes, as in Joyce, or with radical diversities of narrative viewpoint and refusals of narrative closure, John Fowles, or distortions or reversals of temporal order, even to the point of running the story backwards, as in Martin Amos's Times Arrow. Dickens, in Bleak House, famously presents two narrative voices one of which refuses the linear movement and the associated moral consolation of the other. Bakhtin's account of the polyphonic nature of Dostoevsky's fiction is well known. Voices constantly undercut, amplify, contradict and challenge one another, as if to make it clear that the novel is not, after all, the creation of a new and self-sufficient world, if what that means is a coherently finished picture of interacting subjects, but rather the exposure of the unresolved undercurrents of the environment we know. And in case we should suppose that only the tragic is an authentic fictional form, something John Milbank has argued very forcefully, there's also a dimension of fictional narrative which imagines possibilities of change that our normal perceptions routinely encourage us to ignore if ultimate convergence or consolation is impossible to imagine, that's why, Milbank argues, it's necessary to imagine it. Or, to avoid merely annoying paradoxes, if we can't predict or organise or guarantee some sort of reconciliation and healing, we're obliged to approach it through fiction as a means not of evading an unpalatable present, but of acknowledging resources in our world or for our world to which we don't have straightforward access. So the deceptively simple process of telling a story may become another sort of pressure on language to disclose unnoticed wounds or unimagined possibilities or both. With our ordinary visual perception, we can't help recognizing, once we reflect on what is physically happening, the possible plurality of stances already implicit in our routine seeing. We were thinking a bit about that last night. In a comparable way, certain kinds of fiction, like Bleak House, or in a quite different way, say, Ian McEwan's Atonement, remind us that our narratives of ourselves and others are impossible to reduce to a single line, a single point of view. Fiction is significantly about encouraging us to recognize the ignorance we share with the characters of the fiction and to recognize the terrible fallibility of our self-representations. Our own inability to warn or clarify to enter into the story and change it, as with drama in Cavell's account, uncovers the difficulty of hearing warning or clarification ourselves from where we stand as readers. Learning to become human is hard and can be done only in a steady awareness of the difficulty, an awareness that slowly constructs our own renewed self-portraiture. Now, this element of relearning our way, relearning how to become human, takes us back to the fundamental theme of why it is that the work of the imagination makes things strange for us. The environment we encounter and inhabit is more than it seems, and sometimes it takes extreme or excessive speech to prompt this acknowledgement and the deliberate making extreme of our language is, we've said, a tool of discovery. So far, I've mentioned the techniques of poetry and the ironies of fiction. We might also point to those narratives that deliberately fracture the language itself. Not only Joyce's Ulysses, but Joyce's Finnegan's Wake. Or a bit less dramatically, say, Anthony Burgess's A Clockwork Orange. Or the most brilliantly sustained fiction to be written entirely in an imagined dialect of fractured English, I think, Russell Hoban's Ridley Walker, where extreme human situations, compulsive and sadistic violence or post-apocalyptic desolation, are signalled by means of specially constructed languages or dialects. Russell Hoban's Ridley Walker is a dystopic novel, set in a post-nuclear Kent that has reverted to a dark age culture, shot through with half-remembered fragments of the old civilization. It's extraordinarily effective in making us look and listen for our own familiar landscapes of thought and speech and physical neighbourhood in the chaotic and decayed, but also sometimes startlingly, startlingly poetic language of a new barbarism. The great ritual text of this post-apocalyptic world, post-nuclear Kent, is the Usa story, the ritual recital of how the nuclear catastrophe came about. And it tells how Usa is persuaded by Mr. Clever to try and stop wars between people by making the one big one. And to make the one big one, Usa must find the little shining man, the Adam he runs in the wood. You, a knowing man, N-O-I-N-G, a knowing man, pursues the Adam by going into the heart of the stone, into the smallest space imaginable, the forests of dancing interrelatedness within things, where at last he sees the little shining man with arms outstretched between the antlers of a stag, the pun on heart for a deer and heart. As heart, the organism has already been flagged early in the book. Quote, Eustace said to the little man, you must be the Adam then. The little man said, I must be what I must be. Eusser pulls the little man in two and the catastrophe begins. Well, disentangling the illusions here is quite a job. The story of St Eustace converted by encountering while hunting a stag with a crucifix between its horns provides the structure. And that, of course, is a story depicted in one of Canterbury Cathedral's medieval wall paintings part of the Kentish folk memory of Hoban's world. But USA is also, of course, the USA, and the atomic research program, where knowing is knowing, N-O-I-N-G, denying self and world. The little shining man is the atom that is to be split, the Adam whose primordial self-betrayal ruins the world, perhaps the Woodwose of folklore, the wild man in the woods, and ultimately also the God who meets Moses in the burning bush and declares, I am that I am. I must be what I must be. Well, as this story moves towards its horribly ironic and poignant climax, which is the reinvention of gunpowder and the beginning of another cycle of violence and disaster, the complexity of reference deepens. The language draws in more and more echoes and puns among my favourites are the the many-cools and the party-cools for the molecules and particles discovered in the search for the atom. Hoban's Idiolect is one of modern English literature's most sophisticated experiments in extreme language, making things strange to prompt a new level of recognition. The narrative, as you've seen, deploys almost unreadably involved degrees of irony, working not just through narrative development, but through the very texture of the language, through the absurd, suggestive, poetic distortions of words. The Adam who runs in the wood. Not to mention a character in the novel I can't resist uh, alluding to, called the Ardship of Cambry, (laughs) who is the heir of the hardship that Usa brought about by tearing apart the little shining man. But the central image of the narrative, the tearing apart of the atom, A-double-D-O-M, atom, atom, is clearly identified with the tearing apart of the human mind itself. The little man says to you, sir, the one as tears the other apart has got to put something together, No, you ain't done that. Two pieces, P-E-A-C-E-S, is what I will be in till you get your head back and the changes that are released by the splitting of the atom have to be lived through now before Yusser can recover the idea of himself. So this broken language and chaotic imagination, this splitting and recombining and turning on itself that our speech displays, is also part of the process of discovering if we have an idea of who or what we are. It comes from a violent disruption, and it's always in danger of slipping back into violent disruption. But the business of speaking, putting together these echoes and word plays, the shamanic experience of the connection men who utter oracles from time to time, all this in Hoban's novel is constantly on the edge of some breakthrough into meaning and self-knowledge. It is our cleverness that has made us difficult, alien to ourselves. But there is no way to transparency except through the words. Facing and negotiating the difficulty through what we say is our only path forward. In a related but very different vein, Alan Garner's extraordinary novel, *Bone Land*, published last year, imagines a prehistoric mind, close to those of the Ice Age artists I talked about last week, a prehistoric mind in the very act of representation a prehistoric shamanic figure, sustaining the world itself through his ritual action, through the painting of the cave wall, the dances and songs that mark the changes of the stars. If the dancer did not dance and sing and make new the bull on the sky wall, the stone spirit would not send eagles. The eagles flying out from the stone on the horizon feed the stars and guarantee the return of the sun after midwinter. The only adequate way of reading this is to watch the midwinter sky and read it afresh in the language of Garner's mythology, a real seeing for the first time. And his description later on of the creation of a flint blade makes the same intense demands on the reader, obliging us to guess and feel our way through an unfamiliar process imagined in unfamiliar words. Here's Garner's description of the making of a flint axe. He turned the last piece. It was no bigger than two hands. The brown ran through all the weight that he had brought, but ended here. In this one fist there was no floor. He took the white and black and tapped. The bone answered, and it was another song deep where he could not see. He took the yellow and gray. He tapped. He took the white and black again and worked down into the bone. Something lay within. It was close, though he could not see. He came upon it as he would a hare. What's remarkable about this writing is that it invites us to sense not only a physical process, but a relation with the material and the whole environment that's profoundly strange. We are de-skilled by this writing. We're obliged to stumble forward in a new territory. And to be brought to such a point... Is to find ourselves forced to think fundamentally about, once again, the nature of representation, to be confronted with a world that is symbolically charged with whose complexity we are always catching up. Exposure to new kinds of difficulty is the theme that's central to this part of our discussion. So far in this lecture, I've been focusing a good deal on the new kinds of difficulty in responding to our environment that fiction and poetry can open up for us. But I also noted earlier how these imaginative disciplines make our own humanity difficult. And seeing ourselves as puzzling, notes the American philosopher Jonathan Lear, is part of mature self-understanding. And imagining that we have arrived at a satisfactory level of self-understanding is a fairly reliable indicator that we haven't. Fiction and drama offer a particular kind of mirror, not one that simply shows us a clear image of ourselves, but one that tells us it is possible for you to be seen like this. In that sense, fiction and drama offer us something not unlike a dream, if it's true that in a dream, the dreamer plays all the parts we're invited to find ourselves behind the faces of others. The difficulty of strained language, of unfamiliar metaphor, the difficulty of recognizing what we know in what we thought we did not know, all of these have to do with the central difficulties of attending both to the strangeness of another speaker and attending to the idea of who I am, to borrow Hoban's phrase. The search for different and better sorts of precision, which we noted as basic to Margaret Masterman's discussions of metaphor and paradox, is thus tightly connected with the attempt to locate myself as a speaker. That is, in terms of Masterman's own proposal, to qualify our situation here and now as comprehensively as possible. An exercise like Russell Hoban's novel helps us to imagine what it might be to speak out of a dramatically fractured context, seeking to make sense of a half-understood corporate story at the same time as as seeking an identity, a persona, a coherent speaking presence for oneself. The extreme conditions in which Ridley Walker lives hold up a mirror that exaggerates but does not distort aspects of our present world. The sometimes apparently wild connections invoked by the constant wordplay of this novel defamiliarize history and landscape and much of English vocabulary itself and introduce us to possible crossings over of meaning that are deeply unsettling but deeply suggestive, the splitting of the atom, the fall of Adam and the cross of Christ. Alan Garner's Watcher similarly unsettles our understanding of how we are present in our world. Here, we're asked to feel our way into a humanity that's both more passive to the environment, having to learn its rhythms and patterns with a grueling patience and attentiveness, and more active, being responsible through our ritual action for the passage of the seasons and the return of the sun. Both Russell Hoban and Alan Garner are virtuosi of irony, in Jonathan Lear's sense, showing in language what it is to have to relearn how we are in the world by acknowledging something of what it is to inhabit another's disrupted perception and or to have our own perceptions disrupted. Now this prompts the question about how extreme language used in varying degrees in such a range of literary conventions moves us in the direction of theological questions. Religious ritual is of course a familiar context for more or less defamiliarizing strategies dramatic redescriptions of who we are and what we do one of the most dramatic being of course the language of eucharistic practice eating flesh and drinking blood which is on any showing extreme but while that is in itself an intriguing area for reflection my interest here is in what if anything is shown or suggested by practice outside the specifically ritual environment. In this lecture so far, I hope we've seen a spectrum of the ways that language behaves under pressure, all of them taking it for granted that pressurized language delivers something. If we're seeking to locate ourselves to find a place to speak from, we need a map of our environment, a map of our habitual relations to other speakers and to the stuff that language deals with. And that map is not constructed uh, simply by a physical account of what has brought me to this point and what measurable processes I'm involved in. I cannot, as I've observed in earlier lectures, speak as if there were no such processes, let alone as if there were no physical constraints on my situation, but I shan't be able to decide what to say for or about myself on the basis even of all the available information concerning my environment. What I say is significantly bound up with what is said to me. And the tactics of disruption and pressure I've been looking at here are means of allowing myself to hear more being said to me than I habitually acknowledge. The more I pick up, register, learn to deal with, the more I have to say for or about myself. The idea of myself matures. I learn the skills of speaking from a location, quite paradoxical skills in that they involve recognizing when I can say nothing, or perhaps when saying nothing is seriously a moment of maturing in skill. And this inescapably carries with it the point already noted in different contexts. Understanding in this way how we locate ourselves, how we shape our stance in the light of what is said to us, is to approach the environment itself as in some sense pregnant with intelligence. Our exploration in words of who we are or might be or should be, treats our utterances as significant deposits from an encounter with an environment that is, as I argued yesterday, already always symbolic or communicative. And what this lecture has been trying to trace is the ways, or some of the ways, in which this attunement to the symbolic is extended in a remarkable act of faith in language through the assumption that words can be persuaded to say more than they initially seem to mean, whether by the elaborations of metaphor, the pressures of rhythm or assonance, or the breaking down of normal speech in paradox or fractured idiolect. What I earlier called the restlessness of language its playful and profoundly serious reflections on itself, the way language makes jokes in its sleep, to borrow a vivid phrase of Iris Murdoch, all this is the token of this constantly regenerating act of faith, faith that the sheer connectedness of sounds will enlarge what we understand, as if some fundamental significant utterance were being everywhere echoed and with various imperfections picked up. It's not surprising in this context that we turn to linguistic extremism when we actually try to speak of God. Given that God is never a candidate for description as a member of the field of objects I encounter, how do I presume to represent God? For what I'm seeking to represent is not an item in any list. It is a particular aspect of every perception, the aspect that gives to any specific perception its provisionality its openness to being represented afresh. We cannot represent the whole way in which agencies or presences in the world interlock. If we could, it would be just another object. We cannot represent what God knows, sees, or indwells as intelligence. The fact of representation in our language points us towards a dimension that systematically eludes final expression. Yet, yet we attempt to use words and sentences about God that we claim are not simply arbitrary. We engage in something at least analogous to representation. But lest we imagine that we're doing exactly what we do in other sorts of representing, we'll be well advised to expect our language about God to be in many ways profoundly eccentric, and indeed to explore and develop its eccentricities to avoid misunderstanding. Odd as it sounds, our quasi-representing of God may be least off the mark when we're furthest from anything that looks like a fully coherent schema. Which is not an excuse for slackness, but an implicit plea for our words about God to be, as it were, carefully calculated shocks. Which is really to repeat a point made by St. Thomas Aquinas early in the summer, a point originally articulated in Pseudo-Dionysius, that the crudest metaphors for God are often most successful just because no one could mistake them for accurate descriptions. Mircea Eliade, in one of his journals, has an example which I believe he takes from Romanian folk usage. God is like an onion. He tastes strong and he makes you cry. We do not try in seeking to speak truthfully of God to find words or images that will reproduce or imitate the divine. We specify a situation or a possible range of situations through a dramatic metaphor. God as a rock, that is, to stand on or shelter under. God as a fire, to purge, to destroy, to give light, and so on. And to take the principle further, we can speak, as does Jesus in the gospel parables, through calling up a sequence of events, reactions, and relations as a sort of complex metaphor. What is God like? There was a man who had two sons. A certain man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field. To the question, what is God like? The answer is a whole narrative. To enter into this story and discover where you as a hearer fit and what role it's possible for you to adopt imaginatively is to become able to offer a representation that claims truthfulness, but not in the usual sense verisimilitude. If we think of some of Jesus' parables, the unjust steward and the unjust judge are the obvious examples, it seems that carefully calculated shocks were very much part of Jesus' own repertoire in speaking about God. Quote from the philosopher Roger White, We have sections in our dogmatic theologies entitled God as Shepherd, God as King or God as Judge, exploiting the safe analogies. There are no sections entitled God as magistrate Who Ought to Be Struck Off the Bench. It is an embarrassment to have to preach on such a parable, and it appears that at least one fundamental purpose of the parables is to lead us precisely to such embarrassment. Roger White, as I say. The parables are presentations to be absorbed or apprehended as and only as they prompt ways of going on, new modes of action. And the embarrassment of extreme or inappropriate analogies is part of what does that prompting. Understanding God, or understanding the kingdom, the state of truthful seeing and appropriate action that's made possible in the presence or through the action of Jesus and the Gospels, is very definitely a matter of knowing how to go on, once we have encountered ourselves anew in the context of hearing these parables. Extremity in language works by pushing habitual or conventional speech out of shape, by insisting on developing certain sorts of pattern, rhyme, essence, meter, by coupling what's not normally coupled, metaphor, paradox, by undermining surface meanings, irony, or by forcing us to relearn speaking or perceiving, fractured and chaotic language, alienating or puzzling description. And I've not, mostly because of my sheer incompetence in this area, elaborated on the uses of extremity of a somewhat different kind in scientific discourse. A few minutes spent reading an introductory article on string theory will make my point. Extremity is the most developed and ambitious and problematic form of representation. In trying to characterize it, it is indeed hard to avoid the terminology of violence, piling pressure on words, twisting words from their usual habitat, assaulting habitual perception, and so on. Yet the assumption is that something about habitual perception and the speech that goes with it is so inadequate or distorted that a degree of shock to the system, or embarrassment, is a necessary aspect of becoming acquainted with the truth. Talking introduces us to ourselves. Extreme talking introduces us to what we might not immediately welcome, but delivers us from a merely complacent or defensive representing of ourselves to ourselves. I touched earlier on the question of trust in our language, the confidence that language under stress produces meaningful outcomes and viable insights. But to think about how we are introduced to ourselves in the way I've outlined is to express the trust that language under stress also delivers something like therapy for the speaking consciousness. Through metaphor and irony in particular, our own speech dismantles our constructs of the linguistic self that are evasive self-reinforcing, and so on. That kind of confidence makes rough sense against the background I've so far sketched. We act and speak as if our language carried resources beyond its immediate referential vocabulary, as if in some elusive sense it embodied the life or the action of what we're talking about. And if we are in the habit of treating our words as vehicles of an energy beyond them, let alone vehicles of an ultimate creative energy, as in the Greek theological world, it's not too surprising if we also implicitly treat them as capable of disclosing futures we had not consciously imagined. The violence we do to our words when we try to shock ourselves out of idle and selfish thinking or speaking or seeing arises from the sense that we have always already done violence to a more integrated perception through the normal ways in which we construct ourselves in language and need to be jolted back or forwards into another mode of action, another mode which may exhibit a decentering of the defensive or aggressive subject and thus a different kind of implied relation with our environment. If extreme language can locate us differently in our world undercutting our sense of being a finished subject with a clear agenda of need and desire, ironizing our claims to self-awareness, and repeatedly persuading us to begin again in learning what it is to speak and to represent. Then it is a necessary tool of human maturity. It's the single-minded concern with description as a means of comprehension and control that is more likely to generate a violent practice A point clearly signalled in Ian McGilchrist's reflections on brain function. We were thinking yesterday about the experience of the autistic subject and at how it is important in any therapeutic intervention or accompaniment to try and listen to how such a person talks to themselves. What are the rhythms and patterns developed to cope with an unmanageable environment? And the theory is, as you remember, that autistic behavior arises from a condition in which the brain is overstimulated by data that it can't organize or process as others do. And the sometimes extreme and violent actions with which an autistic person may respond to their environment are to do with this deep anxiety over lack of control. Such behavior is capable of modification if the subject can recognize outside something of the sense she or he makes inside if they can see themselves or hear themselves as if in another shape. In the light of this evening's discussion, we'd say that the same fear and anxiety about controlling the level of stimulus coming in is actually part of what motivates our passion to describe exhaustively and rationally. But with something of the same effect of isolating the subject and fostering panic reactions, when our rational models and predictions can't cope. What I've been suggesting this evening is that the work of extreme language is both to break open this isolation and anxiety and to offer the possibility of recognition in and through the reality of what is at first felt as strange. The kind of language I've been looking at this evening has the same sort of effect as the painstaking echoing of the autistic person's pattern-making that gradually brings them into something like a linguistic exchange, even where no words are involved. If, in the extremities of art and certain kinds of science, we are able to recognize ourselves, we recognize that our purely descriptive capacity, our ability to construct detailed models replicating the constitutive elements and causal patterns of the environment is something that exists in a wider context of interaction with what is presented to us, a context in which we are constantly looking for appropriate ways, not of describing, but of absorbing, transmitting, re-embodying what we receive. We see ourselves as more than we thought, more than we had thought of. Implicated in all this is what I'll be turning to in the next and final lecture. Remember Stanley Cavell's account of what's involved in watching a play on stage. In order to experience the drama as drama, we have to suspend all power of action and intervention. And in so doing, Cavell argues, in being brought up against my limits, I discover solidarity in encountering this difference. Suspending my identity as agent and participant is a necessary moment of reconnection with something that is prior to me simply as agent. Cavell speaks with evident embarrassment about wanting but not quite being able to cast this in terms of connecting with being, capital B. This is an embarrassment that arises from a proper reticence in this context. If what we're talking about is a suspension of the capacity to act. This involves the act of speaking itself, and perhaps especially the act of speaking about metaphysics. But is it the case that we discover solidarity in silence as well as in other kinds of suspended action? Of course, an essential aspect of our chosen powerlessness when we sit in the theater is that we don't speak. We can't warn, inform, console, We can't shout out to Othello, don't believe Iago. There have been productions where things like that happen, but they're a little non-standard. But we can't release our tension or manage our anxiety as we normally do by talking, and so we're left with the feedback of our emotions as we watch the drama, including our fear. Silence obliges us to confront vulnerability, and thus silence is involved with all the various challenging and inviting aspects of language we've been considering thus far. It's there in the acknowledgement of indeterminacy. There are no words for a completely open future. It's part of the incompleteness of any linguistic project. It's implicit in the acknowledgement of our bodiliness, the fact that we don't speak from a safe distance above and beyond the flesh, but in the whole of our physical presence, whether we're literally speaking or not and it is a condition for the renewal of speech. We can't handle the radical reshaping of our speech without listening, hearing what we don't usually let ourselves hear, silencing the habitual chatter and buzz of egotistical self-reflection. In the last lecture of this series, I'll be attempting to trace how our understanding of silence in ordinary contexts begins to move us into this territory. Where a silence that is framed, faced, and thought enables something to emerge that's not simply the product of this chatter and buzz. Thank you.
1: you. Um, A truly wonderful lecture. There will now be a a pause of a couple of minutes for anybody who needs to dash off, and then we'll have a question and answer session. So there are roving microphones. Please please indicate if you would like to ask a question, wait for the microphone to come to you, and then as you ask, state your name. Here's, Here's one.
3: I'm sorry to keep asking questions, but um, it occurred to me, I want to go back to a a question that uh, somebody asked um, before a couple of months ago, which was, um, and I'll give it, if if you'll remember the question, it was, I put it this way, that um, when Brian McGee was interviewing philosophers on television many years ago, he interviewed Marcuse, and he asked Marcuse, tell me, what was the most brilliant philosopher you met? And he said, Adorno. I don't know. He was... Nobody understood him. He was a genius. Um, And you remember the question. And the the point I was going to ask you, there's a sense of reflexivity involved in your lecture. I really enjoyed the whole thing about extreme language, pushing forward and things like that. And then you explain it. Um, So you explain it in non-extreme language for those who don't quite get the extreme language. And the problem with that, to some extent, of course, is, is that does that force us back into the, um, the normal language, so we're happy again, because actually, it's really what it was before. Mm-hmm. And, and, and of course, and the point is, and, and that's precisely the interesting point about the parables. Mm-hmm. Because some people think of the parables as just extended analogies, similes. Mm. So we, why do we need the parable when we can have the, um, the, the, the principle, the analogy, mm-hmm. or you think of it, as White does, as a kind of journey <laughs> moving forward. But the question that I was going to say is how do we kind of um, have the confidence to let loose the analogy without, to some extent, trying to control it, um, like saying, yes. well, this is what it might mean. Yes, yes.
2: That's a wonderful question. <laughs> um. <clears throat> Yes, and uh, my, my immediate response is to go back to all those sayings from Goethe, Wittgenstein and people like that saying, all this is grey <laughs> and this is not it um, Yes, to talk about the way extreme language works you, you de-extremise it you domesticate it and that's why you have to say, as, well as a kind of health warning, at the end of any lecture like this, for goodness sake, go and, you know, go and read R- Ridley Walker, don't believe what I say about it, or go and watch King Lear. Um, this is secondary stuff. This is secondary stuff. And it's the only purpose of it is, is to point, I think. Um, otherwise, yes, we do just draw back gently into the comfort area. Lots to think about, and I thank you for, for that.
1: Right, question there.
0: Lord Williams, thank you again uh, for a wonderful lecture. Um, earlier this summer, the New York Times had interviewed an Afghani uh, poet, and this poet said, uh, The poet does not write about love or speak about love. He talks about the struggle of the people. And I think what he meant by that is that often poets from upper classes or aristocracy will, will talk about love because it's a more familiar emotion to deal with and it's easier to comprehend. In some sense, it's easier to write about love than it is to write about struggle and pain that breaks apart all our conceptions and you know forces us to really come up with something better. And so my question to you is, with everything that you spoke about tonight of extreme language, and language is under pressure to describe things or, or to go right up to the past paradoxes, how does that relate to the language of those who are under pressure?
2: Thank you very much. That's that's a very important one. Um, I I would be very cautious about taking that reported remark simply at face value because The remarkable thing is, of course, that people under pressure still do write poems about love. And people who are not under pressure sometimes write poems about struggle. I I don't see it as quite so ideologically tidy as that observation, not yours, I mean what, what's behind it, might suggest, given that The real difficulty, whether you're writing about struggle or whether you're writing about a a conventional love affair, the real difficulty is in the process of writing. And there is bad, slack, sentimental writing about struggle. There is good, transformative, painful writing about love. W.H. Auden, um, who comes to mind very strongly here, wrote some politically very... um, committed poems in the 1930s. Some of them are good and some of them are not, and he knew that, certainly recognised it later on. And that, I suppose, was under what underlay his famous or infamous, infamous remark that poetry makes nothing happen. Don't imagine that poetry is you know, a primary tool of change. I think what he was trying to, to say was the uncomfortable fact that The criteria for, well, let's put it bluntly, good art are not primarily or exclusively political. They're not primarily or exclusively context-specific. They're about the, the honesty or the costliness of what actually is done in the language. You may produce propagandist art, which is... You know, deeply sincere, and important, and effective, don't expect it to slip under the radar of critical scrutiny just because of that. How can, I be, how can I be vulgar if I'm so sincere, as it were? Likewise, we mustn't suppose that there is a sort of high aestheticism which absolves us from the proper artist's attention to the appalling facts of real human oppression and and deprivation. Sorry, it's a rather complex answer, but it's a very complex question indeed. I think it is absolutely right and proper that we attend to poetry and other kinds of art that come from subaltern cultures. There's absolutely no you know, no argument about that, and I'm thinking here of some of the graduate work that my daughter did on post-colonial francophone literature and what she learned from that and shared from that. Um, it's It's not about the legitimacy of a voice coming in, but at some point you have to ask, well, does it work? Not just, is it a matter of a voice finding a legitimate expression? That may be good or bad, aesthetically. We just have to work at that,
4: I think. Um, so I, I have a sort of more general comment, I guess, that will end in a question. Um, and so for me, I was curious, um, in the lectures last night and this night, about your reticent, or how careful you were to distance your, what you were saying from ideas of magical thinking. Um, and I also thought it was very curious in that, in the ways that you've been talking about extreme language, um, you've been using the word metaphor rather than metonym. Um, and I think it's a very curious one and, um, and tied into the idea of structural violence in a way and the capacity for, for violence in language and, and naming um, as a function of, of creating bounded spaces. Um, and and, so I, and I, I'm thinking about it in the context of this idea of silence in the public as well um, and ideas about the Reformation so so I, I'm thinking about how um, uh, Carolyn Bynum's work about Christian materiality mm-hmm. and and talking about um, prior to the Reformation when a statue bled the blood was real or when you ate the wafer the like God was the wafer um, or the the wine was blood, Um, but then after the Reformation, it became metaphor only. And that was the the schism that happened in the understanding. And so the the wine became red like blood. Um, And and so then of course that plays into all of these larger um, political and structural changes that were happening. And also, Um, early theater uh, was famous for the audience very largely participating and shouting and getting up on stage and being very unruly. And um, throughout the development of the public sphere and specifically in the Enlightenment, the the theater became a place where the audience had to learn to be quiet. Um, And so that that being the case, it makes me wonder about um, why you choose to emphasize what you're saying as not being magical thinking, and how that might tie into a larger political context now, and what that means about um, public participation, and um, public participation in, in language production.
2: Gosh, um, yes, that's, that's a huge amount to respond to. Um, let me respond rather briefly to a couple of points why the distance from talking about magical thinking I suppose because um, the way I was defining magical thinking in yesterday's lecture was thinking that it's not so much about the presence of the other in what I'm saying but the possession of the other in what I'm saying and I take the criterion of magical to be some sort of access to control of what's being talked about. And I think, I really put my head on the block here, but I think one of the typical Reformation anxieties is of a late medieval religious culture in which presence had become dangerously tied up with control. Um, that is the... Well, let's let's give a, a very difficult and unpleasant example, the appalling and unforgivable medieval blood libel myth about Jewish behavior sometimes included the idea that Jews would steal consecrated hosts from churches, and then they would torture the host. They would burn the host or cut it, because the host was something which gave you literally the possession of what it was sacramental or symbolically presenting. Some of the Reformation, pulling back from that, is about the fact that a sacrament cannot be magic. In that sense, it can't give, you, it can't give over control. And I think that, that leads in all sorts of complex and not always very edifying ways into a full-scale retreat from notions of engaging with presence and read the, the sermons of somebody like Bishop Jewel of Salisbury about the sacraments. And although there are lots of wonderful things there, the default setting is often, you know, what matters in the sacrament is what's going on in my head. And that's the retreat, which I think you're partly talking about. Um, I'd love to talk more about silence and the theater. Um, quite clearly, Stanley Cavell is not somebody who's been to a, a Renaissance theater in its original form. But the point I think still stands: the enactment of the drama is something that the the initiative of the audience cannot subvert or or redirect. And I think that's that stands as a point. Sorry, lots and lots to come back to there, but that's just I'm a sorry, couple of sorry. thoughts.
1: So we've got a short question here.
2: <laughs> Remarkably <laughs> prophetic <laughs> of your <obvious> principle. <laughs> <laughs>
3: a comment about, um, no, he was quite concerned, in fact, about uh, the de-eroticising of political discourse. Mm -hmm. So I was very glad to hear about the discovery of eros in Welsh poetry. Mm -hmm. Should we be suspicious about a lurking thanatos in uh, Socratic discourse? And what do you think about the attempts of uh, Raymond Williams to find in political discourse? a sexiness, if you like, by introducing the poetic uh, tactic of trying to find tragedy in, uh, in the recent events, which involve, as you, as you mentioned, the themes of dying and of conversion.
2: Wonderful, thank you. Yes, what do we think of Raymond Williams? We think Raymond Williams is one of our heroes, that's what we think. Um, <clears throat> and exactly, Williams' extraordinary effort to do serious, demanding political thinking thoroughly in tandem with an account of the tragic, which remains, I think, massively important, which, which, if you like, um, deprives us of one of the very, very tempting consolations that political action can have, which is that we're moving towards a nice, right answer where we don't have to work any longer. The Long Revolution, you know, it's, it's Williams's great concept. We, we will always be questioning where we've got to, because that's the nature—that's how the imagination works in politics. And if that's how the imagination works, that's also about how desire, how eros works in politics. The worst thing that can happen, and this is the Thanatos thing, is to desire that we stop desiring. And I think one of Raymond Williams' great contributions as a critic and a political thinker is to say whatever we are longing for in political action, it's not the desire to stop desiring.
5: Hello, you spoke of the extreme language of ritualistic prayer, uh, ritualistic Eucharistic prayer, but you also spoke of the maturity of silence during dialogue. We must hear the person we are speaking to, and this reminded me a lot of a metaphor by the Roman Catholic theologian Hans von Balthasar when he states, faith is an organ of hearing. Um, In terms of a person of faith's prayer life, how does silence work in prayer or dialogue with God? Um, In prayer, should we speak, or should we simply recognize our powerlessness and obey the words of God?
2: Thank you, and thank you for the allusion to Balthasar, who's um, quite an important presence in my theological formation. Um, Well, a bit more of this in the last lecture, which is... You know, largely about this subject, but as a sort of taster. Um, the words we use in prayer always need to be, I think, if they're serious, words that take us to the edge of what we can cope with, take us outside our, our comfort zone. Something is, is amiss in our life of prayer if we're just happy with... Consolation with the cliches of emotions we're familiar with. That's why most of the serious masters and mistresses of the spiritual life say, don't for goodness sake try in prayer to produce emotions. That, you know, that work, that made me feel really good yesterday. Let's try it again. Um, the use of words, of images, has to be something which, which pushes you onwards. Which means, you know, things work at one point and don't work tomorrow, and shouldn't. So that, yes, there is a kind of um, dynamic moving towards silence, towards listening. Um, and it's one of Balthasar's most, strangely, most Protestant things. It's, you know, it's a great Reformation principle that you listen before you look. And to quote a name, <clears throat> a name that is of considerable authority and weight in this particular place. One of the things I, I was most struck with in the wonderful theological writings of T.F. Torrance was the a very sort of lucid, clear, and inspiring sense of what it meant to see hearing as, in some sense, more primitive than seeing when we were looking, looking Godwards. But anyway, more of that to come. <laughs> <coughs>
1: Um, I wonder, Professor um, if you would tell us something about the connection between extreme language and cultural relativism for example we find um, God described in terms of a wife beater in parts of the Old Testament and that is surely rather embarrassing today
2: That's a very good point indeed Um, yes, I mean it's Back to Roger White's point, we don't have sections on God as the magistrate who ought to be struck off, we don't have sections on God as as abusive husband, or whatever. Um, our cultural distance and difference perhaps shouldn't be overrated here. I suspect that you know, some of these metaphors were as difficult and as shocking in their context as they are to us now. That, you know, they, they weren't any more bland, let's put it that way. And one of the hard things that we sometimes have to come to terms with in reading, not only Hebrew scripture, but Christian scripture as well, is <laughs> a metaphor is a metaphor. It's not, it's not a simile. It's not saying, in these respects, God is rather like a wife beater, or God is rather like a corrupt magistrate. A story is being told, which in its entirety will generate some startling fresh perspective on God. That does not mean that in the course of the story you say, oh yes, so that's how God behaves and you take it through like that. And I think that, that is a very important principle in, in hermeneutics and one that uh, tends to get overlooked when people pick up an image, a phrase, and... Use it as, as a sanction for certain kinds of language. The, the highly problematic gender violence language that you find in I don't know, bits of Ezekiel, perhaps, um, no more suggests that God approves of violence against women than the parable of the unjust judge suggests that God approves of the corruption of legal process. So, yeah, so I don't think we should overdo the cultural distance, but it's it's a point of real seriousness and substance. I think to see how how we how we wrestle with that. Very
5: <coughs> um, oh, He on Auden. Auden goes on to say. Goes on to say. Poetry is a way of happening, a voice which um, seems to develop it develops his remark, in I I think it's usually in a way that it's not not always seem taken just as, as just as it is. Um, I was interested in thinking about the ways in which, say, differences within the field of poetry. Um, so that um, say, to take an example dear to the modernists, dante's um, the modern, a lot of modernists felt that milton was Milton stretches language too far, often to very to no good effect if you as if you read the section of a war in heaven <laughs> um, whereas and say they preferred Dante who is often less obviously stretching language. And I was wondering if you could Mm. um, talk a bit about those Mm. sort of differences with, differences between poetic, poetic, the idea that sort of there's one thing called poetic poetic language and one thing that, you know, is normal language and Mm. um, Mm. how, what's the differentiation in between is.
2: Mm. Thank you. Um, Another huge question, really. But a couple of thoughts on Dante and Milton. Um, I I instinctively rather share that modernist prejudice and find Paradise Lost very, very hard-going in that respect. I was recently rereading C.S. Lewis's preface to Paradise Lost, where Lewis actually mounts a, a really quite good defense of the war in heaven stuff in Paradise Lost, on the grounds that it is said fairly clearly at the beginning by the angel who's relating it all. Um, of course, I'll have to put this in terms you can understand. Milton thereby sort of lets himself off the hook. Um, I, Lewis, as I say, mounts a good defense. I'm not actually convinced. Um, I think it's much more an excuse for Milton to write the kind of epic he wants to write, which includes quite a lot of conventional epic conflict. And casting the war in heaven in that idiom, I think, um, does something rather curious to, to what he's talking about. So, yeah, mixed feelings about what Milton's doing. Now, what what you quote there, of course, is an example, not so much of Milton stretching languages of milton <coughs> rendering into a certain accessible idiom what is inherently not very accessible with the result that actually the language used is not as stretching as it ought to be it it's back to the question of sort of reigning in almost domesticating if the war in heaven is really just like uh, the campaigns of Oliver Cromwell in Ireland, or whatever you know, you, you have a bit of a problem. Whereas Dante, certainly at the end of the Paradisa, is is wonderfully managing to to stammer and stumble very fluently <laughs> through those last few tussets, um, to to say that I really can't say what this is, but there's this and there's this and there's this and there's this, and, there's this and you know what it's like when, and. Okay, that's it. And the the different kinds of stretching there are, I think, of of a different order. So, to the larger question about um, poetic language and ordinary language, a lot of poetry is written, of course, without the manifest stretching of metaphor. What makes it poetic is not that it's necessarily absolutely shot through with metaphor. It's a particular kind of as I try to describe it, exploratory um, reshaping of the rhythms, the disciplines of speaking. And that's what makes it something other than just routine speech cut up into manageable blocks. Metaphor is just one of the most obvious ways in which it marks itself out, but there are others, I think. And you can see in... Well, I was going to mention somebody like Larkin, but actually the things I remember from Larkin are the metaphors somewhere becoming rain, the towering castle's thresh, you know. So even somebody has apparently um, stayed in his poetical idiom as Larkin still does metaphor. I'm rambling, (laughs) I'll stop.
1: Um, So Lord Williams has delivered a a wonderful lecture followed by a really warm and thoughtful uh, question and answer session. Uh, So please join me in applauding him again.
5: This production is brought to you by the University
3: of Edinburgh.